Deadbolt, it's back. Patches galore and time zones, yes, time zones. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I am Doug Ameth. With me, as always, is Paul Ducklin. Paul, a very happy 100th episode to you, my friend. Wow, Doug, you know, when I started my directory structure for Series 3, I boldly used 001 for the first episode. <laughs> I did uh, not. <laughs> not 1 or 01. Yep, uh, smart. I had great faith, and when I save today's file... I'm going to be rejoicing in it. Yep, and I will be dreading it because it'll pop up to the top. And well, we're going to go over that later. <laughs> you could rename all the others. I know. Zero. Just, oh man, not looking forward to that. There goes my Wednesday. Anyway, uh, let's start the show with some tech history. This week on September 12th, 1959, Luna 2, also known as the second Soviet cosmic rocket, became the first spacecraft to reach the surface of the moon and the first human-made object to make contact with another Celestial body. Very cool. What, what was that long name? The second Soviet cosmic rocket. Yes. Luna 2 is much yeah, cooler, Yeah, much isn't better, it? yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, apparently, as you can imagine, given that it was space race era, there was some concern of, like, how will we know they've actually done it? They could just say they've landed on the moon, and maybe they're making it up. Apparently, they devised a protocol that would allow independent observation. They predicted the time that it would arrive on the moon, so crash into the moon, and they sent the exact time that they expected this to an astronomer in the UK, and he observed independently to see whether what they said would happen at that time did happen. So they they even thought about how do you verify something like this? Well, on the subject of complicated things, we have uh, patches from Microsoft and Apple. So what's uh, notable here? In this latest we round. certainly do. It's Patch Tuesday this week, the second Tuesday of the month. There are two vulnerabilities in the Patch Tuesday that were notable to me. One, because it is actually apparently in the wild. In other words, it was a zero day. And although it's not remote code execution, it is a little worrying because it's a <coughs> log file vulnerability, Doug. It's not quite as bad as log4j, where you could not just get the logger to misbehave, you could get it to run arbitrary code for you. But it seems that if you send some kind of malformed data into the Windows common log file system driver, the CLFS, then you can trick the system into promoting you to system privileges. Always bad if you've got in as a guest user if you are then able to turn yourself into a sysadmin. So that is <laughs> yes. CVE-2022-379694. And the other one that I found interesting, fortunately not in the wild, but this is the one that you really need to patch because I bet you it's the one that cyber criminals will be focusing on reverse engineering. Windows TCP IP Remote Code Execution Vulnerability CVE-2022-34718. If you remember Code Red and SQL Slammer and those naughty worms of the past where they just came in in a network packet and like jammed their way into the system, this is an even lower level than that. Uh, Apparently it's in handling of certain IPv6 packets 
it's you know anything where ipv6 is listening which is pretty much any windows computer could be at risk from this so like i said that is not in the wild so the crooks haven't found it yet but i don't doubt that they will be taking the patch and trying to figure out if they can reverse engineer an exploit from it to catch out people who haven't patched yet because if anything says whoa what if someone wrote a worm that used this that is the one i would be worried about okay and then uh to apple we've written two stories about apple patches recently where out of the blue suddenly there were patches for iphones and ipads and macs against two in the wild zero days one was a browser or a browsing related bug so that you know you could wander into a innocent looking website and malware could land on your computer plus one that gave you kernel level control which as i said in the last podcast that smells like spyware to me uh you know something that a, a spyware vendor or a a really really serious surveillance cyber crook would be interested in then there was a a second update to our surprise for ios 12 which we all thought had been long abandoned but obviously one of those bugs that the browser related one that allowed crooks to break in that got a patch and then just when i was expecting ios 16 i got all these emails suddenly started landing in my inbox just after i checked is ios 16 out yet can i update to it and it wasn't then i got all these emails saying oh well we've just updated ios 15 and macos you know monterey and big sur and ipados 15 and it turns out there are a whole bunch of updates but a brand new kernel zero day this time as well and the fascinating thing there is that after i got the notifications and i went in i thought well let me check so you can remember it's settings general software update on your iphone or ipad lo and behold i was being offered an update to ios 15 which you already had or i could jump all the way to ios 16 and ios 16 also has this zero day fix in it <laughs> even though ios 16 theoretically wasn't out yet so i guess the bug also existed in the beta it wasn't listed as officially being a zero day in apple's bulletin for ios 16 but we can't tell whether that's because the exploit apple saw didn't quite work properly on ios 16 or whether it's not considered a zero day because ios 16 was only just coming out yeah i was gonna say no one has it <laughs> that was the big news for apple and the important thing is that when you go to your phone you say oh ios 16 is available if you're going, oh, well, I'm not interested in iOS 16 yet, you still need to make sure you've got that iOS 15 update because of this kernel zero day. Kernel zero days are always a problem because it means somebody out there knows how to bypass the much-vaunted security settings on your iPhone. The bug also applies to Mac OS Monterey, and to mac os big sur that's the previous version version 11 in fact not to be outdone big sur actually has two kernel zero day bugs in the wild no news about ios 12 which is kind of what i expected and nothing so far for mac os catalina that's mac os 10 the pre-previous version and once again we don't know whether that update will come later or whether it's fallen off the edge of the world and won't be getting updates anyway. Sadly, Apple doesn't say, so we don't know. 
Now, most Apple users will have automatic updates turned on, but like we always say, do go and check whether you've got a Mac or an iPhone or an iPad, because the worst thing you want is just to assume that your automatic updates worked and kept you safe when, in fact, something went wrong. Okay, very good. Uh, now, something I've been looking forward to moving right along is uh, what, what do time zones have to do with IT security? Well, quite a lot, it turns out, Doug. <laughs> yes, sir. Time zones are very simple in concept. It's very convenient for running our lives so that our clocks roughly match what's happening in the sky. So it's dark at night and light in the day. Let's ignore daylight saving. Let's just assume that we only had one hour time zones all around the world and everything was really, really simple. The problem comes when you're actually keeping system logs in an organization where some of your servers, some of your users, some parts of your network, some of your customers are in other parts of the world. When you write to the log file, do you write the time with the time zone factored in? So when you're writing your log, do you subtract the five hours or four hours at the moment that you need because you're in Boston? Whereas I add one hour because I'm on London time, but it's summer. Do I write that in the log so that it makes sense to me when I read the log back? Or do I write a more canonical, unambiguous time using the same time zone for everybody? So when I compare logs that come from different computers, different users, different parts of the world on my network, I can actually line up events. And it's really important to line events up, Doug particularly if you're doing threat response in a cyber attack. You really need to know what came first. And if you say, oh, it didn't happen till 3 p.m., that doesn't help me if I'm in Sydney because my 3 p.m. happened yesterday compared to your 3 p.m. So I wrote an article on Naked Security about some ways that you can deal with this problem when you log stuff. My personal recommendation is to use a simplified timestamp format called RFC 3339, where you put a four-digit year, dash, two-digit month, dash, two-digit day, and so on, uh, so that your, your timestamps actually sort alphabetically nicely, and that you record all your time zones as a time zone known as Z, or Z, short for Zulu time. And that means basically UTC, or Coordinated Universal Time. It's nearly but not quite Greenwich Mean Time. But it's the time that almost every computer or phone's clock is actually set to internally these days. Don't try and compensate for time zones when you're writing to the log because then someone will have to decompensate when they're trying to line up your log with everybody else's. And there's many a slip twixt the cup and the lip, Doug. Keep it simple. Use a canonical, simple text format that delineates exactly the date and time right down to the second, or even timestamps can go down these days to the nanosecond if you want, and get rid of time zones from your logs, get rid of daylight saving from your logs, and just record everything, in my opinion, in coordinated universal time, confusingly abbreviated UTC, because the name's in English, the abbreviation's in French. <laughs> <laughs> Of course. <laughs> uh, something of an irony. 
Yeah. I'm tempted to say not that I feel strongly about it again, as I usually do, laughingly, but it really is important to get things in the right order, particularly when you're trying to track down cyber criminals. All right. If we, uh, it's good, great advice. And if we stick on the subject of cyber criminals, you've heard of manipulator in the middle attacks. You've heard of manipulator in the browser attacks. Now get ready for browser in the browser attacks. Yes, this is a new term that we're seeing. And I, I wanted to write this up because uh, researchers at a threat intelligence company called Group IB recently wrote an article about this. And the media started talking about this. Hey, browser in the browser attacks be very afraid or whatever. You're thinking, well, I wonder how many people actually know what is meant by a browser in the browser attack. And the annoying thing about these browser in the browser attacks, Doug, is that technologically, they're terribly simple. It's such <laughs> it's such a simple idea. It yeah, they're almost really, artistic. Yes, it's not really science and technology. It's art and design, isn't it? And basically, if you've ever done any JavaScript programming, for good or for evil, you'll know that one of the things about stuff that you stick into a web page is that it's meant to be constrained to that web page. So if you pop up a brand new window, then you'd expect it to get a whole brand new browser context. And if it loads its page from a brand new site, say a phishing site, then it won't have access to all the JavaScript variables and context and cookies and everything that the main window had. So if you open a separate window, then you're kind of limiting your hacking abilities if you're a crook. Yet if you open something in the current window, then you're significantly limited to how exciting and system-like you can make it look, aren't you? Because you can't overwrite the address bar. That's by design. You can't write something outside the browser window. So you can't sneakily put a, a window that looks like wallpaper on the desktop like it's been there all along. In other words, you're corralled inside the browser window that you started with. So the idea of a browser and the browser attack is, well, you start with a regular website and then you create inside the browser window you've already got a web page that itself looks exactly like an operating system browser window. Basically, you show someone a picture of the real thing and convince them it is the real thing. It's kind of that simple at heart, Doug. But the problem is that with a little bit of careful work, particularly if you've got good CSS skills, you can actually make something that's inside an existing browser window look like a browser window of its own. And with a bit of JavaScript, you can even make it so that it can resize and so that it can move around on the screen. And you can populate it with HTML that you fetch from a third-party website. Now, you may wonder, if the crooks get it dead right, how on earth can you ever tell? And the good news is that there's an absolutely simple thing you can do. If you see what looks like an operating system window and you are suspicious of it in any way, it would essentially appear to pop up over your browser window because it has to be inside it. Try moving it off the real browser window. And if it's imprisoned inside the browser, you know it's not the real deal. <laughs> the interesting thing about the report from the Group IB researchers is that when they came across this, the crooks were actually using it against players of Steam games. And of course, then it wants you to log into your Steam account. And if you were fooled by the first one, then it would even follow up 
with the Steam two-factor authentication verification. And the trick was that if those truly were separate windows, you could have dragged them to one side of your main browser window, but they weren't. In this case, fortunately, the crooks had not done their CSS very well. Their artwork was shoddy. But as you and I have spoken about many times on the podcast, Doug, sometimes there are crooks who will put in the effort and make things look pixel perfect. With CSS, you literally can position individual pixels, can't you? CSS is interesting. It's a cascading style sheets. It's a it's a language you use to style HTML documents. And it's it's really easy to learn. And it's even harder to master. So um, it's <laughs> that what, sounds like IT for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's like many things. But you yes. it's one of the first things you learn once you learn HTML and you're like, I want to make this web page look better. You learn CSS. So looking at some of these uh, examples of the source document that you linked off to from the article, you can you can kind of tell like it it's it's going to be really hard to do a really good fake unless you're really good at CSS. But if you do it right, it's going to be really hard to figure out that it's that it's a, a fake document unless you do as you say, try to pull it out of a window uh, around your desktop stuff like that. So that it leads into your your second point here is examine suspect windows carefully. A lot of them are probably not going to pass the eye test. But if they do, it's going to be it's going to be really tough to spot, which leads us to the third thing. If in doubt, don't give it out. If it just doesn't quite look right and you're not able to really definitively tell that that something is strange as a foot, just uh, <laughs> follow the rhyme. And it's worth being suspicious of unknown websites, websites you haven't used before that suddenly say, well, OK, we're going to ask you to log in with your Google account in a Google window or Facebook in a Facebook window or Steam in a Steam window. Yeah, I hate to use the uh, the B word here, but uh, this is almost brilliant in its simplicity. But again, it's going to be really hard to pull off a really pixel perfect match using CSS and stuff like that. I think the important thing to remember is that because part of the simulation is the Chrome, as it were, of the browser, the actual address bar is the address bar will look right. It may even look perfect. The thing is, it it isn't an address bar. It's a picture of an address bar. Exactly. All right. Well, careful out there, everyone. And speaking of things that are not what they seem, I'm reading about Deadbolt ransomware and QNAP NAS devices, and it feels to me like we just discussed this exact story not long ago. Yes, we've written about this several times on Naked Security so far this year. Unfortunately, it's one of those things where what worked for the crooks once turns out to have worked twice, thrice, four times, five times. And NAS, or Network Attached Storage Devices, are, if you like, black box servers that you can go and buy. They typically run some kind of Linux kernel, and the idea is instead of having to buy a Windows license or learn Linux, install Samba, set it up, learn how to do file sharing on your network, You just plug in this device and bingo, it starts working. It's a web accessible file server. And unfortunately, if there's a vulnerability in the file server and you have by accident or design made it accessible over the internet, then crooks may be able to exploit a vulnerability if there is one in that NAS device from a distance, scramble all the files on your key storage location for your network, whether it's a home network or small business network, 
and basically hold you to ransom without ever having to worry about attacking individual other computers like laptops and phones on your network. So they don't need to mess around with malware that infects your laptop. They need to break into your network and wander around like traditional ransomware criminals. They basically scramble all your files and then to present the ransom note, they just change the login page. Oh, I shouldn't laugh, Doug. They just change the login page on your NAS device. So when you find all your files are messed up and you think that's funny and you jump in with your web browser and connect there, you don't get a password prompt. You get a warning. Your files have been locked by Deadbolt in this case. What happened? All your files have been encrypted. And then come the instructions on how to pay up. And they've also kindly offered that uh, QNAP could put up a, a princely sum to unlock the files for everybody. The screenshots I have in the latest article on nakedsecurity.sophos.com have individual decryptions at 0.03 bitcoins, originally about 1200 US dollars when this thing first became widespread, now about $600. There's a five Bitcoin option where QNAP get told about the vulnerability so they can fix it, which clearly they're not going to pay because they already know about the vulnerability. That's why there's a patch out in this particular case. And as you say, there's a 50 Bitcoin. That's a million dollars now. It was two million when this first story first broke. But apparently if QNAP pay the one million on behalf of anybody who might have been infected, the crooks will provide a master decryption key, if you don't mind. And if you look at that JavaScript, it actually checks whether the password you put in matches one of two hashes. One is unique to your infection. The crooks customize that every time. So the JavaScript has the hash in it, doesn't give away the password. And there's another hash that, if you can crack it, it looks as though you would recover that master password for everyone in the world. So I think that was just the crooks thumbing their nose at everybody. It's interesting, too, that the $600 Bitcoin ransom to each user is, I don't want to say not outrageous, but not outrageous to the point that if you look in the comments section of this article, there are several people who are not only talking about having paid the ransom, but let's skip ahead to our reader question here. Reader Michael shares his experience with this attack, and he's not alone. There's other people in, in this comment section that are reporting similar things. Across a couple of comments, he says, I'm going to kind of make a Franken comment out of that. He says, I've been through this and came out okay after paying the ransom. Finding the specific return code with my decryption key was the hardest part. Learned a most valuable lesson here. His next comment, he goes through all the steps he had to take to actually get this to work again. And then he dismounts with, I'm embarrassed to say I work in IT, have been for 20 plus years, and got bit by this QNAP UPnP bug. Glad to be through it. Wow, yes, that's quite a statement, isn't it? It's almost as though he's saying, I would have bet myself against these crooks, but I lost the bet, and it cost me $600 and a whole load of time. Uh, what does he mean by the specific return code with his description key? Ah, uh, Yes, that is a very interesting slash intriguing, I'm trying not to say amazing slash brilliant here. <laughs> um, I don't want to use the C word and say it's clever kind of it is how do you contact these crooks do they need an email address could that be traced do they need a dark website these crooks don't because remember there's one device the malware is customized and packaged when it attacks that device so it has the unique bitcoin address in it and basically you communicate with these crooks by paying the 
amount of Bitcoin into their wallet. I guess that's why they've kept the amount comparatively modest. I don't want to suggest that everyone's got $600 to throw away on a ransom. But it's not like you're negotiating up front to decide whether you're going to pay 100000 or 80000 or 42000 You pay them the money, no negotiation, no chat, no email, no instant messaging, no support forum. You just send the money to the designated Bitcoin address, and they'll obviously have a list of those that they're monitoring. When the money arrives, and they see it's arrived, they know that you and you alone paid up because that wallet code is unique. And they then do what is effectively, I'm using the biggest air quotes in the world, they then do you a refund on the blockchain using a Bitcoin transaction to the amount, Doug, of zero dollars. Mm-hmm. And that reply, that transaction, actually includes a comment. Remember the Poly Networks hack? They were using Ethereum blockchain comments to try and say, oh, dear Mr. White Hat, won't you give us all the money back? So you pay the crooks. That's the message that you want to engage with them. And they pay you back $0 plus a 32 hexadecimal character comment, which is 16 raw binary bytes, which is the 128-bit decryption key you need. That's how you talk to them. And apparently they've got this down to a T, like Michael said, it did work. And the only problem he had was, you know, he's not used to buying Bitcoins and working with blockchain data and extracting that return code, which is basically the comment in the transaction payment that he gets back for $0. So they're using technology in very devious ways. Basically, they're using the blockchain both as a payment vehicle and as a communications tool. All right. A very interesting story indeed. We will keep an eye on that. And thank you very much, Michael, for sending in that comment. If you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you until next time to stay, stay secure. secure.